Blog Talk Radio. Joe Biden gave a speech, Barack Obama gave a speech, the DNC is over, the RNC is beginning today, son. Um, So I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the leftovers from the DNC that I haven't gotten to yet. Um, I will talk about Mike Pence's response to the DNC, which does not bode well for Trump moving forward. Um, We have Trump's sister goes after him in secret record in a secret recording steve bannon they knocked him on fraud so there's a lot of stuff to talk about today i got new poll numbers too which are just out of this world um it shows that there is a significant chunk of the republican base that's just on another planet man and uh president trump pushes some more cancel culture stuff because that's what he is he's a little cancel culture loving snowflake so anyway without further ado Let's get started, and uh, we're going to do that with the DNC. So, a few days ago now, Joe Biden gave his speech at the DNC, accepting the nomination to be the Democratic presidential candidate, and um, I want to give you his speech in a nutshell here. Actually, I don't know if it's fair to say that. This is actually the parts of the, the parts of the speech that got under my skin the most. But let's watch that, then I want to respond to it. And also, I want to give you the overall sentiment and takeaway. Watch. And speaking of President Obama, a man I was honored to serve alongside for eight years as vice president. Let me take this moment to say something we don't say nearly enough. Thank you, Mr. President, 
You were a great president, a president that our children could and did look up to. No one's going to say that about the current occupant of the White House. What we know about this president is if he's given four more years, he'll be what he's been for the last four years. The president takes no responsibility, refuses to lead, blames others, cozies up to dictators and fans the flames of hate and division. This is our moment to make hope and history rhyme with passion and purpose. Let us begin, you and I together, one nation, under God, united in our love for America, united in our love for each other. For love is more powerful than hate. Hope is more powerful than fear. And light is more powerful than dark. This is our moment. This is our mission. May history be able to say that the end of this chapter of American darkness began here tonight as love and hope and light join in the battle for the soul of the nation. And this is a battle we will win and we'll do it together. I promise you. Thank you, and may God bless you, and may God protect our troops. He ended with, may God protect our troops. <laughs> you think they're leaning in a little bit to like the... Hey, we're just like the Republicans, except not insane. Uh, I mean, that's what this is. And there was a lot of, there was the theme of faith. Like, that was a big thing throughout the entire DNC. Family values. Again, big theme throughout the entire DNC. Marcos Melitsis tweeted the other day, like, I'm all about rubbing it in the Republicans' faces that now we're the party of God and we're the party of family values. And it reminds me of something that I said jokingly the other day on Twitter that, you know, I'm going to believe in everything the Republicans believe in to own them. Maybe you're not owning them. Maybe you're just becoming them. And isn't the whole point to not be like them, not do the things that they do, not have the same value set, stand for something different, stand for something better? No, of course, that's out the window. So, I mean, pouring it on a little heavy there with the, hey, we're Republicans. May God protect our troops. <laughs> Come on, man. But anyway, um, so now before I get into the responses to this specific, you know, portion that I just showed you, one of those parts was at, towards the beginning of the speech, the other part was towards the end of it. But um, overall... I actually think the speech landed. I do. Um, you know, whenever I watch these things, I try to give you two analyses. One is, like, what I think of it and how, you know, I'll, I'll pick apart the BS in everything he said. But the other analysis is, like, how do I think your average American would interpret this speech? And, you know, from the average American perspective, I think there was just enough there that made this a successful speech. I, I do think it's very possible that just like in the debate with Bernie Sanders, I'm convinced they gave him something. <laughs> I'm convinced they gave him Adderall or they gave him Seroquel or a mix thereof. And, you know, so he was focused and he was sharp and he was quick-witted in the debate with Bernie. He was more like that than, you know, lost Uncle Joe. So I do think they probably gave him some sort of drugs to, like, you know, keep him coherent the entire time because Lord knows what will happen if he gets off script and if he's a little bit tired. Um, but 
the thing that made the speech, I think, overall successful and the thing that made it land with regular people, in my opinion, if you watch the entire thing, is that it's just, there's, it's just Uncle Joe enough to, to be relatable. Okay, like Joe Biden, in today's day and age, he does have an interesting advantage that other politicians like Mayor Pete lacked. And that thing is that when Trump came along, he blew up this typical model of politician, which had been successful previously. The previous model was based off Ronald Reagan. And Ronald Reagan was very actor-like, very on script, very professional sounding. And in many ways, you know, Obama was more of that variety or flavor of, of politician in terms of his appearance than Obama was like the newer breed. The newer breed of politician in the modern era uh, is more, has to sound more off-the-cuff, unfiltered, shooting from the hip, because in today's day and age, you get the sense that, that that's something that people find more relatable, more real, and like that person is not scheming behind my back. If somebody sounds like they have no filter, it's much more likely that they're not scheming behind my back and somebody like Hillary Clinton or Ronald Reagan or Barack Obama, who sounds too on script and too perfect and too professional, that there's something else going on there that they're hiding from the public view. So what Joe Biden has that somebody like Mayor Pete didn't have is he does sound like Uncle Joe when he talks. I mean, sometimes he rambles and, you know, he's, he's off the beaten path and he's talking about, like, emus and shit because his brain's not working. But, <laughs> but he does sound like Uncle Joe when he talks. And so it was just Uncle Joe enough, I think, the speech to land with regular people. The other thing is... Joe does have something that other politicians don't, which is he has that immense, deep, real, personal tragedy in his life. Now, does that mean that he's definitely going to do all the right policy goals? Of course not. Not at all. In fact, he's decidedly against a lot of the things that we need, like Medicare for all. Um, but what will happen with average people who don't really follow politics that closely is they will infer by looking at Joe's personal tragedy and his personal story, and they'll go, oh, that guy's got to probably look out for me because look at everything he's been through. So he feels it. He knows the pain. You know, it, a, they made a big thing about how Joe used to have a stutter, and so he helped this little boy with a stutter, and the little boy, you know, talked to the DNC and was like, he gave me the confidence that I needed to move forward, and everybody across the board was like, damn, that is sort of a touching story, regardless of what you think of Joe Biden. There was, an, there was um, somebody who worked um, at, at the Capitol in, like, the elevator and Joe was like one of the only people who would stop and talk to this regular person about, hey, how's, how's it going? How's your day? And this person really meant a lot to the person. And so, you know, she spoke at the DNC and it was one of, it, it was another sweet moment. We were like, okay, he seems like a regular guy enough to really feel people's pain. And of course he had the personal tragedy with, you know, his, his wife and the car accident and forget it with Bo. So there's a lot of personal tragedy there, which makes him more relatable. So you have, the Uncle Joe aspect of it, where he sounds like he's shooting from the hip, and then you have the personal tragedy angle of it, and then you mix in with that enough of the return to normalcy, you know, vibe, and I think it's going to hit, it's going to strike a chord in today's day and age when everybody feels like everything is so haywire because Donald Trump is president and the country's falling apart. So I do think that overall this speech is going to land. Now let me get to the second part of my commentary, which is how infuriating the things are that you just saw in that clip I just showed you. So he starts off by doing the thank you Obama thing. Guys, I don't know how else to say this other than Barack Obama is one of the main reasons Donald Trump got elected. A lot of people voted for Barack Obama, including myself, in 2008 and thought, I hope we're going to get like FDR-style change. 
We had the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. The economy was imploding. We didn't want half measures. We wanted a new, new deal. That's what we wanted. One of the most important things was I wanted to end the wars. So what did Obama do? He didn't do a new, new deal, and he didn't end the wars. We're still in Iraq. We're still in Afghanistan to this day. So Obama, sounding like this outsider and then being a status quo manager, really let a lot of people down, especially in my generation, man. Like my generation, it's, it's, we've been so turned off to politics because, you, you know, your hopes get up that there will be real change coming and then it's not delivered. And then you have the establishment looks at somebody like Obama and they think, no, he's the ultimate, you know, winner. And he's the ultimate success story because he managed that status quo properly. He sounded like an outsider and then he governed as an insider. And to Joe and the insiders, that's successful. You know, just like Bill Clinton was successful in his eyes. When, of course, Bill Clinton, you know, destroyed welfare, um, did the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, which repealed Glass-Steagall, which led to a market crash. You know, I can go on and on. So the whole thank you Obama thing, it's like, oh, they literally have no idea how we got Donald Trump. In their mind, they really think it's all that Donald Trump's a vicious racist bigot and a bunch of vicious racist bigots voted for him, and that's the end of the conversation. No deeper analysis needed. They have no idea that the fake populism of Trump actually landed. The fake populism of Trump was, you know, one of the key ingredients which made him win the Rust Belt, and they turned uh, against TPP pushing Hillary Clinton and and NAFTA supporting Hillary Clinton, so they, they never learned that lesson, probably never even heard the argument. And so, you know, you go out there and it's, hey, thanks, Obama. That is that's a, a, a reactionary worldview. Trump was saying, let's make America great again. What did he mean? Like, go back to like the 1950s, right? And then Biden comes along and says, let's make America great again. What does that mean? Go back to like 2012. But 2012 was also abysmal. See, a, a, a progressive instinct is let's actually create a future that is more successful than anything we've had to this point. And that's not what he's in favor of. He's in favor of, let's make America great again like it was in 2012. Thanks, Obama. We think you were a great president. Listen, when your health care plan, which is one of his top accomplishments, still left millions of people uninsured, that's not a success. That health care plan originally came from the Heritage Foundation, which is a right-wing think tank. It was supported by Newt Gingrich and Chuck Grassley. And, you know, Mitt Romney implemented a version of it in Massachusetts. It's better than nothing, but it's also... Not great, because you still have millions of people who aren't covered. So that's not enough. But he wants to run on, let's just build on that. That's not enough. And so I think that this represents a fatal flaw in the way the Democrats are thinking. And in any normal election year, this would lose. It would lose. The only reason it's, it's very possible to work this time around, it's maybe likely to work this time around, is because Trump is so abysmal and the pandemic is so crushing the country and the economy is so imploding that it it could just be a swift anti-Trump change election and it doesn't even matter what the hell he's saying. But they're going to take all the wrong lessons from it if they win. The lesson they're going to take is, oh, Obamaism is alive and well. Neoliberal corporatism is alive and well. The American people love it. And that, of course, is not true. So he goes on to say, 
And, and these are a lot of the kinds of arguments you see throughout the night. It's all character attack. Oh, Trump, he doesn't take responsibility. Is that true? Yes, it is true. Oh, Trump, he's a bad leader. Is that true? Yes, that is true. Oh, Trump, he cozies up to dictators. Is that true? It's as true as what your administration did. You guys did weapons deals with Saudi Arabia. They did a genocide in Yemen. You're cozying up to dictators as well. So a lot of this is just, you know, the character attacks. Oh, my God, he's such a bad person. It's not as much about the policies because they kind of agree with many of the policies. Nancy Pelosi has enabled Trump every step of the way, whether it's his, his Patriot Act NSA spying, which she increased his powers on that front. She gave him a bigger military budget than he ever had. So, like, you guys enable him on that front. So you're not making it about the policies because you're really not that different policy-wise. In some ways you are, but not in, in, in every way. Um, and that's a shame. I wish it was more about policy than it was about, like, character. Because the personal quality angle, it's overplayed in politics. Somebody can have a shitty personal character, but will also fight as hard for you as possible on issues that matter. So it's just not the best measure. Um, And then finally, the last thing that he relied on, which, and by the way, this was basically the entire DNC, everybody did this, is um, the flowery language, the platitudes, and the cliches. This is our moment. We're one nation under God. We're going to give love and light and hope. And we're going to turn away from the darkness. That doesn't mean anything. You may as well have gone up there and made a fart noise for three minutes and 37 seconds. That doesn't mean anything. Because you can, a Republican can say the exact same words. And their interpretation of what, would, what that would entail is totally different than yours. Oh, you know, we need to be, uh, this is our moment. We need one nation under God. A Republican could say that and they mean like, hey, let's ban abortion. And, you know, when you say it, I don't know what you mean. But you just mean, you just want to. Fill the room with pleasant sounds. (laughs) That's what you're doing. Love is good. Light is good. Hope is good. Darkness is bad. Thank you for saying absolutely nothing. And so, listen, you do get you do get the sense that this is the this is the the last gasps of a dying breed of politician that's only propped up by corporate money, and you know is only in this position simply because. The media convinced people with their propaganda that Bernie Sanders was an unsafe choice, and so people defaulted to Biden thinking he was the safer choice. It's the only reason he is where he is. Immense propaganda and a ton of corporate money. And so it's just, it's just an older operating system, man. This stuff is not, this is not the future. It's just not. And um, so it's, it's really sad to see, but I think there's just enough there where, you know, it might be enough to get him through this election And uh, all I have to say is that when we have the debates, break out the drugs again, because he's going to need it. And if he has them, he's got a decent chance. If he goes into these debates without drugs, oh boy, look out. Okay, next. Now we're going to go to Obama in this speech. Jesus. I don't want to lose it during this one, but I might. So President Obama spoke at the DNC a few nights ago. Um, It was a deeply hypocritical and sanctimonious speech. Uh, I will break that down in detail for you. So here's the part that got under my skin the most. But more than anything, what I know about Joe, what I know about Kamala, is that they actually care about every American and that they care deeply about this democracy. 
They believe that in a democracy, the right to vote is sacred, and we should be making it easier for people to cast their ballots, not harder. They believe that no one, including the president, is above the law, and that no public official, including the president, should use their office to enrich themselves or their supporters. Look, I understand why a lot of Americans are down on government. The way the rules have been set up and abused in Congress make it easier for special interests to stop progress than to make progress. Believe me, I, I know it. I understand why a white factory worker who's seen his wages cut or his job shift overseas might feel like the government no longer looks out for him and why a black mom might feel like it never looked out for her at all. I understand why a new immigrant might look around this country and wonder whether there's still a place for him here. Why a young person might look at politics right now. The circus of it all, the meanness and the lies and conspiracy theories and think, what is the point? Well, here's the point. This president and those in power, those who benefit from keeping things the way they are, they are counting on your cynicism. They know they can't win you over with their policies. So they're hoping to make it as hard as possible for you to vote and to convince you that your vote does not matter. That is how they win. That is how they get to keep making decisions that affect your life and the lives of the people you love. That's how the economy will keep getting skewed to the wealthy and well-connected. How our health systems will let more people fall through the cracks. That's how a democracy withers, until it's no democracy at all. And we cannot let that happen. Do not let them take away your power. Do not let them take away your democracy. Make a plan right now for how you are going to get involved and vote. Do it as early as you can and tell your family and friends how they can vote too. This speech is quintessential Obama. Man, that was masterful to watch, and I don't mean that in a positive sense, so let me explain. He... He lays out at the end there, like he correctly diagnoses the problem, and then he does a bait and switch, and his solution is the standard nonsense that hasn't worked to this point and will not work. So you heard him. His argument at the end there was basically like, hey, listen, man, I know the system is corrupt. I know the system left you behind. I know, you know, the white, whack, uh, the white whactory worker, the white factory worker who got, uh, you know, his, his wages cut or had his job outsourced. I know that you're down on politics. The black single mother, I know you feel like the government has never been looking out for you. And, you know, but here's, here's the thing. They're counting on your cynicism, and they know they can't win you over with policy, so they just want to make it harder for you to vote. So what's his solution to... How he diagnoses the problem? He diagnoses it by saying, listen, the system is corrupt and it's leaving you behind. And his solution? You really got to vote, dog. 
that's a, almost a comical bait and switch. That if if voting was the solution, well, these problems wouldn't. I mean, people voted for you twice. <laughs> He's acting like he was never president. They voted for you twice, and then Trump won. What does that tell you? I know that you want to think your legacy is pristine and amazing and immaculate. Well, if it was, there wouldn't have been a Donald Trump. Now, I get it. Everybody wants to just pawn off Trump's victory to they're all irredeemable, racist, bigot, deplorables, and that's why he won, and that's the end of the conversation. But that's a mighty convenient narrative, isn't it? The good people were doing good things, and then the bad people came along and and elected the bad guy, and now the bad guy's doing bad things. The world is not that simple. One of the main reasons why Donald Trump won was because of his fake populism. Going to the Rust Belt, saying, I'm not going to let your job be outsourced. I'm going to protect your job. As Hillary Clinton was running as a continuation of the status quo and a continuation of the trade deals. Obama was pushing for TPP during the election, during the 2016 election. You want to reflect on that? Maybe that has something to do with it? I think it does. You think maybe it has something to do with it that Obama did the Wall Street bailout and then he looked away as they paid bonuses to the same CEOs who bankrupted their companies and crashed the economy. The fact that he could say with a straight face that, hey, man, listen, I know the system is corrupt. I know how much the special interests control it. I know how much you feel like you're left behind. But you got to vote. It's unbelievable. No, people voted for you, and you were a continuation of that corruption, of the special interests controlling government. Guys, Citigroup handed Barack Obama a list of people to put in his cabinet, and he abided. He literally brings up there, he said, um, nobody, including the president, is above the law. You shouldn't use the office to enrich yourself or your supporters. The very first story about Barack Obama after he got out of office, remember this? was that he's going to give a speech to Wall Street and he's making hundreds of thousands of dollars for it. He just said there, nobody, including the president, is above the law. I'll get back to that one. You shouldn't use the office to enrich yourself or your supporters. You did use the office to enrich yourself. You're getting paid by Wall Street because you looked out for them when you were in power. Oh, you shouldn't use it to enrich your supporters either. Tell me again the stories about Hunter Biden making how much money per month by sitting on a Ukrainian energy board when he doesn't know anything about energy or Ukraine. So Barack Obama and, and, and Joe Biden are part of this swamp. They're part of this system. They're also insiders. And that corruption was exploited by a fake outsider, a demagogue who pretended to be more populist. And they still don't understand and they still don't diagnose that problem properly, or they still don't acknowledge their own failings, is a better way of putting it. And that line nearly killed me, by the way, when Obama said, nobody, including the president, is above the law. George W. Bush is above the law because you didn't prosecute him. You're saying nobody's above the law. You actively made a decision as president. That I'm going to let George W. Bush and Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld and Paul Wolfowitz and Bill Kristol, I'm going to let them be above the law. They lied us into an illegal and offensive war against a country that didn't attack us. And there were no consequences. Minimum, hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians, women and children, died in Iraq. Obama only goes as far as calling it a mistake. No, 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 it's not a mistake. It was very intentional. And it was a war crime. It was illegal. 
It's not a mistake. A mistake is when you drop your plate of food. You say, whoopsie, invaded a country and killed hundreds of thousands of innocent people. <laughs> That's not a mistake. That's how Obama talks about it. Because if you're part of the elite ruling class, it's just differences of opinion. Torture, that's a difference of opinion. Some people are pro-torture, some people are against torture. It's not that it's illegal, it's not that it's unconstitutional, it's not that we gave Japanese soldiers the death penalty in World War II after they tortured our people, it's not that we got these, these uh, torture techniques from communist Chinese manuals on how to torture, no. It's just a difference of opinion. We tortured some folks, as Obama said. The president is above the law. The president is above the law. You know who else is above the law? Barack Obama. You were president, you're above the law. You had a 90% civilian death rate with your drone war. You continued the illegal wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Looks to me like the president is above the law. That's what it looks like to me. See, this is the problem, man. It's all sanctimonious BS. It's funny, the difference I feel between the, you know, in 2008 when I heard Obama talk and how I feel now when I hear him talk. Now, I see what he really is. You know, Mayor Pete is a clone of Obama, but now when I hear Obama talk, I think, oh, that's like, what's going on inside is exactly what's going on inside Mayor Pete. Nothing. Vapid, empty, shell of a man. Continuing the status quo while pretending like he's standing up against it. Somehow voting for the same people to be in charge that were in charge prior to Trump will what? Fix all of our problems? No, it seems to me like it'll help lead to the next Trump. Because neoliberal corporatism has consequences. It has a backlash. And he even bothered to say at the beginning of his speech, Joe and Kamala care about every American. And they care about our democracy. Did they care about, did you guys all care about democracy? When at the very last minute, you made some phone calls to Amy Klobuchar and Mayor Pete and got them to drop out for a promise of positions in a Biden administration, so you coalesced and consolidated at the very last minute to stab the populist progressive in the back, the guy who would have gotten us health care and would have ended the wars. Did you care about democracy then? Did you care about democracy when the news came out about how in 2016 they effectively rigged the primary against Bernie Sanders? That's what we learned as a result of their own words from, from the WikiLeaks leaks. Now, what will they say in response to that? Oh, my God, Russia maybe, maybe not was behind it. So if you talk about it, you're aiding a foreign power. So www.shh.com, you're not allowed to talk about facts, about what we know happened. Because something, something Russia bad. But did you care about democracy back then? Did you care about democracy when they were rigging it and trying to take it from Bernie Sanders? Now it's the same. Our democracy! Yes, our democracy! Did Joe and Kamala care about every American when Joe wrote the crime bill? And when Kamala was all, look at me, I'm a law and order person. Seems to me like you didn't care about the Americans who smoked weed, for example. Joe locked them up. Kamala laughed at the idea of legalizing weed in like 2014. By the way, how are we ever going to end systemic racism if we don't end the racist drug war? And free all the nonviolent drug offenders. How are we ever going to end the, you know, how are we ever going to end racial injustice if we don't do that? Well, Kamala and Joe are on the record. They're not going to, they're not in favor of legalizing marijuana. 
even though, what is it, it's over 60%, maybe 70% of the country now favors legalizing marijuana. But Obama will come out here and give the sanctimonious speech about how they care about every American. Do they care about every American when anywhere from 45,000 to 60,000 Americans die every single year because they don't have access to basic health care? The only way to stop that is Medicare for all. Apparently they don't care about every American because they're not in favor of Medicare for all. You're still going to have deaths because of a lack of health care. Joe's own plan on his own website said, I want to cover 97% of Americans. What about the other 3%? Screw them. Is that, I guess that's your position. Only 97% is his ideal plan. It's not even like he started with 100 and was negotiated down by big bad Republicans 97%. He started with 97%. They don't care about every American. They don't. You don't. Sorry. He does the whole, like, he, he, he runs through it all. The system is corrupt. It left you behind. I get it. I get the cynicism. And then his solution is just vote. <laughs> People have been doing it for a long time. Hasn't gotten that much now, has it? He had the nerve to say they can't win you over with their policies, talking about Republicans. That's correct. You know who else can't win us over with their policies? Democrats. Because I've seen the issue-by-issue polls, and they are as clear as day. The American people overwhelmingly want Medicare for all. They want free college. They want to end the wars. They even want a Green New Deal. These are all things that the Democrats are not going to be for. So you also can't win us over with your policies, which is why you resort to flowery language, platitudes, and cliches, and long pauses in between the words you say. A thing that was very effective for you in 2008. But in 2020, you just look like the bullshitter you are. Okay, next. So Mike Pence proved that he has terrible political instincts with this line of attack that he's using against Joe Biden and the speakers of the DNC. Let's watch. President of the United States, Mike Pence. Good morning to you, Mr. Vice President. Good morning, Ainsley. Good morning. So what were your takeaways over the last four days? Well, I, I think the, the whole of the Democratic National Convention uh, was uh, a very, very negative view uh, of America. And, it, and there was no attention paid to two of the most important challenges that our nation faces, either during the convention or during Joe Biden's except in speech last night, and that is the violence that's besetting the families in major cities across this country and uh, the, the economic and strategic challenge that we face with China. Not a word about that, as far as I could tell, 
uh, from Joe Biden last night and from any, uh, any of uh, the speakers. Instead, we, we heard that negative view, the, the criticism, the ad hominem attacks against the President of the United States. President Trump announced that the era of economic surrender was over. We stood strong against China, imposed tariffs, uh, and as we rebuild our military, reaffirmed our commitment to freedom of navigation. Uh, you know, China's getting the message that America's going to continue to stand strong. And the fact that Joe Biden in his speech last night never mentioned China was truly remarkable. And it's also remarkable, Brian, uh, that the Democrat nominee for President of the United States never mentioned the violence that is claiming lives and destroying property in major cities across this country. And I'm going to tell you, this president, this administration are going to stand with the men and women of law enforcement uh, with programs like Operation Legend, where we've seen the arrests of more than 1,000 criminals in cities across the country already. We're going to bring law and order to our cities. You're going to hear about that next week. But the fact that, that Joe Biden didn't talk about China, didn't talk about the violence in our streets, tells you all you need to know about the liberal agenda that they're going to they're going to try and advance in the American people. These guys are in serious trouble for the election. They're in serious trouble. Um, in 2016, how many times have I made this argument on air for you guys? In 2016, Trump had very normy lines of attack against Hillary Clinton that were very successful. She's going to outsource your job. She doesn't care about you. She's corrupt. She sent you to war. We should have never had that war. Like, it was all, it was like the basics. It was like keeping it simple, hammering over and over. I'm the outsider. She's the insider. She already screwed you a thousand times. Why would that be different? Roll the dice on me. That was 2016. 2020, I mean, like, he just told you what their line of attack is going to be. Their line of attack is like, there's violence in the streets. We're for law and order. They're not. And isn't China really bad? Why isn't he talking about China? Guys, 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 guys. Right now, here's what matters to Americans. The pandemic, which has killed about 170,000 Americans, sickened 5 million. Everybody's impacted by this. Everybody. So it's the pandemic, which means it's health care, too. And it's the economy. The real unemployment rate is like 20%. There's been wage cuts across the board. If you're not talking about COVID, if you're not doing something in regards to COVID and healthcare, and if you're not doing something serious and drastic about the economy, you're never going to be able to successfully change the conversation to protest in the streets and China. By the way, here, let me just make a very simple point which really illustrates the problem with this mindset. They're obsessed with violence in the streets of violence and violence and violence. How many deaths have occurred as a result of the protests? And let's even add in the riots that we have. And we had a few days of riots early on in this. How many people are dead? What's the body count? Okay, now, what's the COVID death rate? Imagine 170,000 people died from riots and violence in the streets oh, then we're really having a conversation about, oh, my God, this is insane. That would be the main issue. But that's not the case, you know? You had a, a couple of Denny's got ruined. <laughs> like, 
Now, okay, I, I agree. I'm not. I'm generally not in favor of uh, property violence. You know, I, I am a deep believer in um, civil disobedience and, and nonviolence. I think that's the principled approach in order to to try to get what we want and change the country. But I digress from that. Bottom line is, the biggest issues in the country are the economy and and the pandemic. And they're just trying to change the conversation in a way that's going to be wildly unsuccessful. Nobody is waking up going, God damn you, China. They're trying to do with China what the Democrats are doing to them with Russia. So what do they do with their, oh, my God, Donald Trump's a Manchurian candidate. He's Vladimir Putin's puppet. He gives him everything he wants. It's so terrible. Soft on Russia. That's what the Democrats say. That's all nonsense. That's all nonsense. So what do the Republicans say? Oh, Joe Biden, puppet of China. Oh, my God, China's the worst. Oh, my God, do something about China, 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 China. No, no, no working person in the middle of the country is waking up and going, God damn China. Now, it's not to say they don't have problems. Of course they do. So does Russia. But that's not, uh, I mean, what are you? You're the, you're the vice president of the United States of America. Get people UBI. Get people Medicare for all. Tens of millions of people have no health care. And you're talking about China. And by the way, also, really, the, the other biggest argument you make is, oh, uh, Biden's not in favor of law and order. That dude wrote the crime bill. Not only is he in favor of law and order, he's too much in favor of law and order to the point where he's overly harsh to nonviolent criminals. So his problem is that he's too far right wing on that, not too far left wing. And they're trying to make it seem like, oh, he's just, see, he's radical left, too far left wing on this stuff. It's almost like they're trying to lose. See, this is why I was, I was you know, sounding the alarm in 2016 about, oh, my God, it's Trump versus Hillary. Trump can win. Trump can win. Trump can win. I just saw it unfolding. I'm more confident in Biden than I was in Hillary. Now, does that mean the race is a lock and it's over? No, of course not, because a million things can change. There are too many variables. But I'm more confident in Biden than I am in Hillary, not because of anything Biden is doing, but because of how bad the Pence-Trump strategy is. It is so bad. It's Biden's like an Antifa Marxist puppet, and oh my God, what about China? And oh my God, what about you know, law and order? I can't believe that they thought this was the right reaction. Guys, I saw the entire DNC. There's a million lines of attack you can use that are substantive. I mean, all they have is virtue signaling, attitudes, and cliches. Like, that's what it is. We're Democrats. We virtue signal, and then we give you some platitudes and give you some cliches. We're super arrogant. We think we're God's gift to this earth. And really, we fundamentally are status quo managers. We're not going to change anything. Like, that's the real criticism of the DNC. They're really out-of-touch elitists. Like, that's the real criticism. They're not going with any of that stuff. And they're not going with corruption because they're corrupt as well. They're also out-of-touch elitists as well. So they go with, you know, law and order in China. Like, that is, that's going to work on nobody. The only people, all you're doing with that, even your own base is yawning, but of course your base is going to stick with you. You're not getting any, any new voters to, to come in your direction by using arguments like that. So anyway... Listen, as bad as the DNC was, as abysmal and pathetic and embarrassing, like, if this is the line of attack against it, then yeah, Biden's going to get a DNC bump. He's going to get a convention bump, for sure. Because this is the best they can muster up in response to it. 
it's like we're watching, you know, two groups of idiots trying to lose. That's really the sense I get. Shut up with the beeping bitch. Shut up with the beeping bitch. Okay, former Democratic candidates really piss me off. This one, this, this one breaks my heart to do. I'm not going to lie to you guys. This one hurts. So the former Democratic candidates for president had a, a very awkward, fake, scripted, massively edited Zoom call uh, wherein they pushed Joe Biden. And um, I, I highly recommend you watch the whole thing. It's only like five or six minutes. But, you know, God damn it, man, my heart breaks. I'm watching Andrew Yang, who I generally like. He seems like he's just reading off a teleprompter, you know, reading from a script, and it's so plastic. That hurts. Um, You know, I roll my eyes at virtually everything that some of these people say, like Beto and and Mayor Pete. They're kind of the same person, too. Anyway, I digress. But um, this is the part that really, really triggered me. So, by the way, Cory Booker was the one who was supposed to be like the leader of all this, and he set up the Zoom call and everything, and they're going through their overly scripted fakeness. And then there's a moment here that just, I don't have enough sad words to fully explain the depth of my despair as I watch this. Take a look. Now, to think some people say they don't know if they're going to vote or, vote or not. Uh, are saying that from a point of privilege that a lot of Americans don't have. There are so many things for lots of folks who live life on the margins that this election is going to decide. And maybe it's not a life or death issue for you, uh, but we are all in this together. Absolutely. Corey, what I would say is that uh, this is clearly the most important election in the modern history of this country. And Joe Biden, you have a human being who is empathetic, who is honest, who is decent. And at this particular moment in American history, my God, that is something that this country absolutely needs. And all of us, whether you're progressives, whether you're moderates or conservatives, have got to come together to defeat this president. Thanks for that, Bernie. Thanks for that, Bernie. I'm going to get back to Bernie in a second, but you heard it there. From Cory Booker, you know, a bunch of people don't know if they're going to vote. They might sit out the election. This is, for, this is a privileged thing. This is from a, a, a position of privilege. Like, a lot of people can't afford that, man. This is an argument that Cory Booker just made. The problem with it is it is empirically, provably, verifiably untrue. So what do I mean by that? Well, if you look at the polling data, the majority of non-voters... Poor people and people of color. So in other words, the same people who are most impacted are the same people in many instances who say, I can't do it. Can't do it. System's too gross. System's too corrupt. I'm not going to participate in it. Nothing's going to change anyway. So he flipped the argument exactly on its head. He pretended like the people who are choosing not to vote Like they're all, you know, they're all wealthy, wealthy purists. 
and obviously you're just privileged. Listen, I could even tell you guys anecdotally, most of the non-voters I've spoken to are just so beaten down by the system. They're not, you know, privileged. They just feel like the system is so corrupt, so gross, so beyond repair, and there's too few differences between the two parties that they're not going to waste their time. Now, if you want to acknowledge the facts of the matter and then argue with those people, debate those people, give a different point of view, that's totally fine. That's open dialogue. That's discourse. That's fine. But that's not what they're doing. They're not even acknowledging the facts. They're not even acknowledging the fact of the matter about who the non-voters are and why many of them are not voting. Obviously, it varies from from voter to voter. You have to talk to each one on a case-by-case basis. But, like, they they don't even allow in the discourse the, the option of, hey, maybe some of these people actually are not privileged at all and they think the system is so gross and so corrupt and there's too few differences between the party that they're not going to waste their time. Because to acknowledge that would shatter their worldview of Democrat good, Republican bad. See, this is all they have, guys, is the tactic of voter shaming, which says what? Which says it's hard for them to make a proactive case for Joe Biden. Now, do some people do that? Yes, and I have nothing but respect for people who are out there making honest honest arguments for Joe Biden. This is clearly not that. It's just not that. Like, I don't, I don't roll my eyes when I hear Chomsky give his take because he's very careful and specific. You know, his biggest thing is like, hey, look, climate change is going to destroy everything, destroy the prospects for organized civilization on Earth. I can't allow that. You know, basically, even if Joe Biden was just 10% better than Trump on climate change, he's not. He's way more than that. He's 50% better than Trump, right? That's enough right there for me. That's his argument. Okay, totally fair. Totally fair point. I'm not going to argue with you. You know, I'm not going to say you're being dishonest because you're not. You're not. This is dishonest, what I just saw. That's dishonest. You're not even acknowledging the reality about non-voters. You're literally erasing Erasing who? Poor people and people of color. (laughs) Now, if I overlooked or erased poor people or people of color, they'd immediately call me a bigot, you know? But he does it, and it's just, stop just just being a good Democrat and shaming people to fall in line. How'd that work in 2016? How'd that work? You know? It's so funny because they act like, oh, my God, these lefties are so influential And then they immediately disrespect them, spit in their eyes, shame them. Well, if, if, you know, these lefties are so powerful, why are you not trying to court them in ways that are reasonable? Or why are you not pushing Joe Biden to make some major concessions to get them on board? Just, it's just too much, man. It's just too much. Something broke inside me when I watched that clip. Because then Cory Booker makes the argument that non-voters are privileged. Bernie knows that's not true. Bernie knows that's not true. He knows it. And what does he do? He takes the ball and runs with it. He doesn't say, Cory, I don't know about that. He says, Joe is empathetic and honest and decent and kind, and Trump is really, really, really bad. Was the Iraq War empathetic? Was NAFTA empathetic, decent, 
kind. Now people get mad at me when I say this stuff. Don't get mad at me. Get mad at him for voting that way. If he didn't vote that way, I wouldn't have to make that point now, would I? So it's just, you can't, your strategy moving closer to the election can't be, I'm just going to become more dishonest. It can't be that. The truth has to come first. And with these guys, it doesn't. All they want to do is shame you because they have no other tactics to try to get you to vote for Joe, which says a lot, doesn't it? That does. That says a lot. They've learned nothing. And it still might actually be enough to win because Trump really is just that bad. So they're going to take all the wrong lessons from this. They're going to take the lesson that neoliberal corporatism is awesome and you should be in favor of it and the American people love it. That's the lesson they're going to take away from this. And unfortunately, Bernie Sanders is kind of helping them do this, isn't he? Okay. mainstream media networks have been obsessed with the DNC. Across the board, they're saying, oh my God, it's brilliant, it's touching, it's amazing, they did a great job. Now that is just, I mean, it's so disconnected from what I've seen in left-wing circles. You know, across the board, the left is really let down by this. They think it was fake, they think it was hokey, Um, they think it was packed full of platitudes and cliches as a substitute for actual policy substance. They think, in my opinion, you know, they were too self-obsessed as there's a pandemic and a depression. Like, you know, they're up there basking in the glory, Kamala telling her story, you know, giving her about her personal life. And I'm watching this going, okay, but we need Medicare for all. We need universal basic income. There's a pandemic and a depression. I mean, no disrespect, no offense. I don't really care about your personal life. I don't care about any politician's personal life. So, you know, but the media polar opposite. Oh my God, it was such a great convention. It was brilliant. And they're using the correct electoral and and governing theory. So here's CNN host Fareed Zakaria laying out how he thinks the DNC and Joe Biden's campaign is nailing it. Let's watch, then I want to respond. But first, here's my take. The Democratic National Convention began with a mosaic of Americans reciting the preamble to the U.S. Constitution. It was a striking display of ethnic, racial, and gender diversity. But more importantly, this time around, the Democrats took care to celebrate the kind of ideological diversity that is crucial to winning the White House on November 3rd. The convention prominently featured progressive icons like Bernie Sanders and Stacey Abrams, moderates like Hillary Clinton and former Republican Michael Bloomberg, conservatives like John Kasich and Colin Powell. Many on social media reacted furiously to including Republicans, with one user sarcastically asking, what time is Dick Cheney speaking? But Joe Biden seems to understand that Twitter will not cast the deciding vote in this election. He is returning to a winning formula for the Democrats, which is to be a big tent party. The humorist Will Rogers once quipped, I am not a member of any organized political party. I am a Democrat. 
the joke expressed an important truth. The Democrats dominated American politics from the 1930s through the 1960s because they included all kinds of people, from southern segregationists to northern liberals. It was a Faustian bargain, but that coalition rescued the country from the Great Depression, passed Social Security, Medicare, food stamps, Head Start, and a host of other programs that helped whites and minorities alike. Okay, so he gets it exactly backwards here. He brings up the 1930s and how the Democrats did so well in the 1930s, and that example actually disproves his overall theory. What was the deal with the Democrats dominating in the 1930s? It's very simple. FDR. What did FDR give us? Social democracy. The New Deal. So now he could say, oh my God, but the coalition was made up of all these different people. Why and how was it made up with all those different people? Because they agreed on the basics. We're in a depression. We have to get out of a depression. What's the best way to do it? Tax the wealthy, redistribute, do a new deal, shovel-ready jobs. Okay, that's why the Democrats dominated. Because social democracy means you're actually standing for something. You're actually fighting for working people. So, yes, there were, you know, there were different parts of that coalition, but they all signed up to the FDR agenda. That is the opposite of what's going on today. So what's his argument? Well, he says, hey, listen, Democrats were celebrating their ideological diversity, which is a good thing. They're a big tent party. That's a good thing. So he's arguing this notion of a big tent party is the way that the Democrats win. Here's the problem. There's a contradiction in that worldview. If you believe in such a big tent party that anybody's welcomed in, well, then you quite literally stand for nothing because you'll take people on both sides of every single issue. So if you stand for people on both sides of every single issue, then what do you believe? What do you believe? Well, you believe both sides of every issue, which means you're fundamentally contradicting yourself on every single issue, which means you have no real core. You have no real values. So you literally cannot have it both ways. You cannot have a Big Ten party that's so big that allows in your ideological enemies. Because then you're by definition vapid and you don't stand for anything. So the real way we should approach this, my argument is the 1930s. The real way we should approach this is the FDR way. So what does that mean in practice in the year 2020? Here's what it means. If you're going to be part of this movement, you have to agree to the basics. Now, do I allow for ideological diversity on ancillary issues? Of course, absolutely, because they're ancillary issues. But not every issue can be an ancillary issue because then you don't stand for anything. So what are the basics? Well, in, in you know, my ideal world, the basics would be you have to be for Medicare for all. You have to be for fighting for health care for everybody in the middle of a pandemic when tens of millions of people don't have health care and we're seeing COVID bills for over a million dollars a pop sometimes. So you have to be for Medicare for all. You have to be for universal basic income in the pandemic. You have to be for ending the wars. You have to be for a living wage. These are the things that you have to be for. You know, listen, can, can there be reasonable disagreement as to what exactly the top marginal tax rate should be? Of course. 
Somebody might say 39%, somebody might say 45%, somebody might say 60%. That's reasonable. That's an ancillary issue. That's granular details, okay? What is not that is the goal of Medicare for all. What is not that is ending the wars. What is not that is universal basic income in a pandemic. So the conversation that we should be having is, okay, what are the basics? What constitute the basics that are non-negotiable? FDR certainly had them. So it wasn't really a big tent party. It was people signing up to the social democratic agenda. That's what I want today. People signing up to the social democratic agenda. Do I care about your religion? Do I care about your skin color? Do I care about your background? Do I care about something that you tweeted in 2013? No, 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 no. In that sense, we're a big party. We're a big tent party. In, uh, when it comes to ancillary issues, we're a big tent party. But when it comes to the basics, no, we actually believe in something and we're going to fight for it. That's the way it should work. That's the way it worked in the 1930s. But he's glorifying the way it works today. What's the way it works today? Yeah, you have John Kasich and you have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. They're diametrically opposed on virtually every single issue. So which thing is going to be the thing that the Democratic Party fights for? You can't, you can't please both AOC and John Kasich. It is literally impossible. So which direction are you going to go? Well, the reality is they're going to go more in John Kasich's direction because they're corporatists and because they're path of least resistance people and because they're moderate Republicans. That's effectively what Joe Biden is. I'm arguing that's a bad thing. By the way, when they talk about big tent party and ideological diversity, really what that means is we're going to bring in the progressives and we're going to ignore everything they want and we're going to bring in the conservatives and we're going to be more in agreement with them, more in alignment with them, and we're going to push for that philosophy. Why? Because that was his record to this point in his career. Why would it change? That's what Joe Biden is. He's a neoliberal corporatist. He pushed to cut Social Security, did it repeatedly. He supported the Iraq War. He supported the Patriot Act. He supported many of these outsourcing deals. I expect no different from him as president. He's going he's to govern as a neoliberal corporatist the way he has his entire career. That's what I expect. But this big tent party stuff is just a ruse because it means the Democrats overall stand for nothing, but they'll go path of least resistance, which is neoliberal corporatist. But Fareed Zakaria is praising this as if it's a good thing. And he's bringing up the 1930s, which is an example that disproves what we're doing today, what the Democrats are doing today. Now, is it possible that this might work in terms of the Democrats winning? Sure. But the only reason it would work is because Donald Trump is so horrendously awful that this is just a change election, a swing election. That's it. That would be the only reason it works, not because there's some sort of ideological brilliance in contradicting yourself and, and having no real governing philosophy, having no real meaning behind your party. I'm just so tired. It's just so tired. And by the way, nobody ever demands that of the right. You know, oh, Big Ten Party, ideological diversity. Why is Fareed Zakaria not pestering the Republicans to reach out to me? Why are they not doing that? Because it's a ruse. Because it's a game. Funny. You elect Republicans, you get Republican policy. You elect Democrats, you get Republican policy. And then people like me and you who want to change that, oh, my God, if we speak up, we're crazy, we're dumb, we're stupid, we don't know what we're talking about, we're strategically wrong, we don't know how to govern, we're not serious about politics, and all this nonsense. I'm sick of it. He has no idea what he's talking about. None of these people have any idea what they're talking about. None of them have any idea what they're doing. And it couldn't be more obvious. 
Okay. I'm going to take a break. When we come back, Trump's retired federal judge sister was secretly recorded by another family member. We're going to talk about that and much more. Stay right there, y'all.
Son of a bitch. I am back, y'all. I am back, I am back, I am back. And we are going to talk a little bit about Donald Trump's own family turning on him. There's a lot to say on that front. So, um, all right, let's get it started. What number story was this? Numero six. All right, here we go. Trump's retired federal judge sister was secretly recorded by another family member, and she made big news this week because she said this. On the eve of the Republican National Convention, we're getting stunning new audio of President Trump's sister, Mary Ann trump a former federal judge, disparaging her brother's character and his record in office in tapes first obtained by the Washington Post and secretly recorded by the president's niece. The president's sister criticizes the president for lying, lambasts his job performance, and says he's out only for himself. God damn tweet and the lie. Oh, my God, I'm talking too freely, but you know... It's a change of story, the lack of preparation, the lying, the holy Judge Barry also says the president had someone take his exams before he transferred to Wharton, and according to the Washington Post, he says, quote, Donald is cruel. Now, the most interesting thing about this story, in my opinion, is that it's actually, like, not even a little bit surprising, and it's nothing compared to, like, eight other things he said or did this week. Like, when I heard this story, my reaction was more like, of course. Like, what do you mean? Yeah, of course. He's a giant liar. (laughs) He only cares about himself. Um, Apparently, he had somebody take his SATs. I'm not even a little bit surprised about that either. Um... And I'm not even really that surprised that other people in his own family recognize this about him. So I think the reason why this is so interesting to me is because it's not really that interesting. Is because it's so banal and expected and straightforward and anticipated that, you know, it's almost like it's sad how my reaction was just more, duh, than... Oh, my God, the president is a pathological liar, and even his own family knows it. He only cares about himself, and and even they know it. No, it's like, well, no shit, of course. (laughs) And the fact of the matter is, you know, Joe Biden's what? Eight points up on him on average? I mean, in a world that made sense where the Democrats would actually stand for something, he should be like 25 points up on him. But no. Even his own sister, who's a retired federal judge, was like, yeah, cheated on his SATs, total liar, only cares about himself. It's like, she she sounded like overwhelmed by it, too, like, Jesus Christ, dude, reel it in a little bit. I mean, that's how, that's, that's what a pathological liar is. It's somebody who they open their mouth and they just can't stop lying. It's just, it comes to them naturally. And I do think Trump fits that bill. So you guys know me, man. I'm, I'm not one to talk about the character stuff that much because I care more about policy. But, I mean, Trump doesn't give us 
what we need in terms of policy. And he's also totally lacking when it comes to the character stuff. And I will say this, like the character, you know, judgment and analysis. I think if you're watching this and you're in my generation or younger, for us, it is more about the policy than the character stuff. But um, I feel like for older voters, the character stuff is maybe even more important because that's the language they understand. You know, older voters, as a general rule, are not exactly going through policy papers or reading detailed articles about what's happening. Um, but what they do understand is character stuff. And so when they see somebody who embodies all these negative traits, that, that lands for them. And so, you know, apparently even his own sister's like, come on, guys, really? This is, this is absurd. This guy's ridiculous. You don't see that? I do think that is indicative of like, you know, sort of like the older generation shift away from him. And you have seen that reflected in the polls. The seniors, the seniors in Florida, for example, many of them are now pro-Biden. So it's one of those stories that I needed to bring up to you guys, but I'm totally unsurprised by it. So it even barely registers, even though it is kind of a big deal. I mean, imagine, you know, I guess did Obama's brother... Obama and his brother, or his half-brother, don't like each other. I know that much. And he's like a big right-winger. Um, but, yeah, I'm trying to imagine if whether it was Obama or, you know, Bill Clinton. And I'm not big fans of them, obviously. But if you had people in their family who were like, pathological liar, cheated on his uh, SATs, <laughs> I do think that that would probably land more. But Trump hits us with so much stuff over the course of a week that this one's lost in the noise. And it's not even, I don't know if this was ever really the number one story in my mind, even the day it broke. Okay. All right, let's talk about Steve Bannon. Change my graphic, bitch. Gonna change my graphic, bitch. Steve Bannon, as Trump once called him, and I laughed at it for about five minutes, Sloppy Steve, (laughs) I'm never going to get old. So he's been arrested for fraud and various other financial crimes. Here's a CNBC report about it. Steve Bannon has been arrested and indicted by the Manhattan U.S. Attorney, uh, federal prosecutors in Manhattan. For more on that, we'll get to our Eamon Javers. Hey, Eamon. Yeah, Carl, this news just coming out from the Southern District of New York saying that Steve Bannon and three other men uh, have been arrested and indicted uh, in charge in relation to their role uh, in a nonprofit organization called We Build the Wall. It's a crowdfunding organization that the FDNY says uh, has raised about $25 million uh, for wall-related funding. Uh, what the uh, indictment here is alleging is that Bannon and these others were skimming some of the proceeds from that fundraising for themselves, uh, even though they had suggested publicly that uh, this was a volunteer organization and they were not taking salaries. This indictment document here says that Bannon publicly stated, we are a volunteer organization. Those representations, the government says, were false. Uh, They also say that Steve Bannon 
through a nonprofit organization under his control, Nonprofit One, as it's referred to here in the document, received over $1 million from We Build the Wall, at least some of which they say Bannon used to cover hundreds of thousands of dollars in his own personal expenses. So, Carl, dramatic development here for a former high-ranking White House counselor. Uh, we'll see if the White House has uh, any statement on this uh, coming up this morning. Back over to you. Wow. Carl, you can still donate. Your donations uh, have a direct impact. Right now, you can go to the site. You know, maybe it's still advised. I'm looking over, right yeah, I'm looking over the, uh, the DOJ release right now, guys. Uh, the, as alleged, uh, they say, uh, the defendants defrauded hundreds of thousands of donors, capitalizing on their interest in funding a border wall to raise millions of dollars under the false pretense that all of that money would be spent on construction. Wow. This is like the least surprising news of all time because I remember when I covered the story about the GoFundMe for the border wall, I was like, wait, hold on. This is obviously illegal. <laughs> you, can't, you can't crowdfund to do something that you don't have the rights to do. Does Steve Bannon and the other guy, Brian Colfage, and, you know, there were a bunch of, like, high-profile Republicans who were associated with this. But, like, do they own the private land all along the southern border? No. Do they own the public land all along the southern border? No. So they don't have rights to the private land. They don't have rights to the public land. But they're going to do a GoFundMe to build a border wall. You obviously don't have the rights to do that. The second you start building on public land or private land, the person who owns the private land can come up to you and say, I don't want you building on my property and you have to stop. Or the government could come up to you and say, I don't want you building on the public land, you have to stop. So I couldn't, for the life of me, I didn't understand. They raised so much money. They raised so much money. And obviously it wasn't going to go to the wall. And they raised... $25 million or thereabouts. So, I mean, imagine, like, I know that there's a lot of smug Democrats who are, like, almost happy that these people got ripped off, giving their money to a border wall that wasn't going to be built. But, no, you can't. You can't do that. You can't, <laughs> you can't do that. Now, by the way, there's an interesting fact in the story that blew my mind. I couldn't believe this. Apparently, the only reason they really got caught was because they made a 100% promise where they said, no, you don't get it. 100% of these funds are going to the border wall. And apparently, whenever you have some charity thing, some nonprofit thing, and, so, and somebody makes a pledge of 100% is going to something, that immediately triggers the feds because they know that that's basically impossible to do 100%. And so even if you did 97%, that's technically illegal. That's technically against the law. So it's just the fact that they were so stupid that they didn't write, like, hey, it's going to be whatever it was, 85% going to the wall. Um, that really just triggered the federal investigation in the first place. And then once they started the federal investigation, oh, they uncovered, they uncovered a lot. So Bannon got like a million dollars, went to him personally. Brian Colfage guy got like 350000 or 400000 and there were others who got money. Uh, the, the Brian Colfage guy bought uh, 
He bought a boat that he used at one of the Trump boat parades. <laughs> and then, of course, Bannon has since come out, and he's got a deep state plot, this and that. Is it really? So why don't you show me the wall? Oh, that's right. You can't because <laughs> you didn't build it. Um, I just I couldn't believe that anybody was was gullible enough to think, like, you could just do a GoFundMe for the border wall. And, by the way, in their text messages to each other, they're literally talking about the way to set it up where it's sketchy and illegal, but they might be able to get away with it. Like, they're clear in their communication, like, this is wrong and we probably will get caught, but if we do it this way, maybe we won't get caught. So they knew that they were, you know, doing something that's wrong. And, by the way, listen, this, I mean, Trump surrounds himself with guys like this all the time. And in terms of, Batten's one of the people, funny enough, who strategically is like not the dumbest in the administration. Imagine what the dumb guys are like. <laughs> and, you know, guys like Roger Stone, like he surrounds himself with Roger Stone, Steve Bannon. These guys are like, you know, petty criminals. I mean, this was so brazen, man. This is so brazen. This is like grifter to the max. And Washington, D.C. is full, full of assholes like this, by the way, so... They were just a little too, it was a little too ambitious. It's a little too ambitious to do a GoFundMe for the border wall, raise millions, promise 100% of it is going to the border wall. And then who knows what happened in terms of like, I think, I forget, but didn't they say something like, oh, if we can't do that, it'll go to like charity or something? I don't know. I don't know. Whatever. They got caught. I'm not surprised by it. Literally go back and watch the segment announcing the GoFundMe, and I'm going, this is clearly illegal in the segment. And apparently, funny enough, the feds who saw the GoFundMe story were like, oh, well, this is obviously illegal. (laughs) And idiot, but Fox News was promoting it. Fox News was promoting it. You don't have, like, legal experts or attorneys behind the scenes who could be like, hey, there's the X and A on the thing this guy. Don't do that, bro. Don't do that. You want to get caught up in a legal web? Because these these guys are going down skis. So anyway, I can't believe you went with like deep state plot when to come out and say, no, 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 this is all fake. I can't. Like, dog, you're caught, man. You're caught. I, I don't know. I mean, this is the equivalent of like your wife walking in on you mid-sex act with somebody. Like, done. You're caught. It's over. Can't say, deep state made this happen. Come on. What are we doing? You just grow up a little bit, man. Grow up. I mean, it's just pathetic. Okay. CNN host Brian Stelter did a segment going after Trump for using the word hoax too much. The effect of the term fake news has started to wear off. So President Trump has switched to a new, more malicious word. I think it's a hoax. 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 One of the great hoaxes. Hoax. 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 Greatest hoax. 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 Illegal hoax. Hoax. It was all a hoax. 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 It was a total hoax. Dangerous hoax. Hoax. It was a total hoax. 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 It was a total hoax. Right. Right. Hoax. This year alone, Trump has tweeted the word more than a hundred times. He often relies on it in speeches and interviews. He has said it more than 250 times total so far this year on Twitter, at speeches, at rallies, etc. He used the word just yesterday on Twitter. 
And Trump is not alone. The right-wing media, Sean Hannity in particular, often repeats the word as well. It's been said more than a thousand times on Fox so far this year. What are the corrosive effects? That's actually one of the reasons why I titled my book Hoax. We're going to call it Wingmen. But when the pandemic began to, to upend our lives, and Hannity used the word hoax, and Trump used the word hoax, they were blaming the Democrats for making too much of a fuss. I realized that the language he uses is poisonous. Hoax, the word hoax is poisonous. And you don't have to take it from me. Let me bring in the senior fellow at the Johns Hopkins University's Agora Institute, Peter Pomerantsev. He is with me from London. Peter, I, I emailed you. I asked you for help, and I was finishing my book, because I needed to understand what the effect of the word hoax is. You've written books uh, like This Is Not Propaganda, you know, about the war against our reality. Um, you've written the book Nothing Is True and Everything Is Possible. We'll get into that in a moment. But first, just the word hoax. What do you think the President of the United States is doing with that word? Look, it's quite a clever word. I mean, hoax kind of comes from the word hocus, hocus, hocus. Uh, it, it sort of seems to imply that there's some, you know, malign plan, some, uh, you know, devilish agency behind the criticism of him. And that the criticism isn't, you know, isn't objective, isn't sort of the thing in itself that it's actually part of a game, um, an information war game. Um, and that kind of, you know, it's a, it's a very clever thing. I see it used across the world. Uh, Putin does it a lot as well. Kind of, you know, you get rid of the space uh, and the arena where you can have, you know, critical thinking and objective criticism, and instead every kind of debate becomes a manipulation. So it's all about, you know, the bad guys out to get me rather than the substance of the arguments. It is very effective. Um, the reason why I wanted your insight on this is because of, of one of your other books. It's titled, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. Uh, this is about Russia. But that phrase, that, that idea, nothing is true and anything, everything is possible, that feels like what America's going through, this destruction of truth. I mean, this segment is rich because they're acting like we live in this post-truth world and they're at the same time talking about Putin and Russia and Russiagate imploded on itself. Nothing came about from it. And yet so many Democrats still believe the most absurd version of Russiagate. They still believe that like Donald Trump is a Manchurian candidate under Vladimir Putin's thumb doing his bidding every step of the way. And so as they're maligning this era, this like post-truth era, um, they're participants in it. They act like they're above the fray and they're totally objective and like we're truth tellers and it's just Trump who's full of it. And it's like, actually, no, you guys are also full of it. By the way, even like the criticism they're making of Trump here is such a meta criticism. They're like, man, he uses the word hoax too much. And it's like, okay, but... Why don't you get specific? Which thing that he called a hoax are you taking issue with? Because, yes, I would agree. Probably 80% of the time he says X is a hoax. It's not. You know, he says mail-in voting is a hoax. It's not. You know, you want to go down that path? Then I totally agree with you. But, I mean, when he called Russiagate a hoax, and it turns out he wasn't taken out of the White House in handcuffs, as many on the Democratic side thought he would be, and Mueller really didn't find dick in relation to Russia specifically— if he calls that a hoax, he's not wrong. He's not wrong on that front. So they don't 
they're not going into the specifics and giving objective criticisms. They're doing this meta-criticism of like, he says the word hoax too much. Now, I'm not going to give you the details of any one particular case. I'm just going to expect you to agree with me that he says the word hoax too much. Well, again, the details matter. The specifics matter. You have to go case by case. He said hoax in this instance. Here's why that's BS. He said hoax in this instance. Here's why that's BS. He said it in this instance. That's why that's BS. And they're not doing that because they're lazy, and they're also partaking in this post-truth era, and they were proponents of Russiagate. You want to talk about a post-truth era? I mean, how many stories? Jesus Christ, The Intercept detailed this very well. How many times was there like, bombshell story involving Russiagate, and it just imploded immediately? Immediately. Even the most recent one, a Russian bounty story. Even that imploded within like a week or two of it coming out to the point where even uh, Colin Powell was like, that's not, that's, they don't have that right. So you'd think there'd be a little bit of humility. You would think that the mainstream media networks, who, by the way, were also responsible for helping us lead up to the Iraq war, doing propaganda for the Bush administration, you'd think they'd have some humility. But they don't. They have no humility. So they, I mean, the problem is they partake in this post-truth era like Trump does. They just have the mirror image version of it. As long as it's to own Trump, it's okay. You know, they're more than happy to resist from the right. They're more than happy to use BS criticisms as opposed to the substantive criticisms against Trump, of which there are many. And listen, this is, I think this is a really good example of how the media is letting us down in the Trump era. You know, it's not, they have an amazing inability to focus on the things that matter, that are important, and that is their job. And they go like a, like a bug to a light towards like the dumbest, silliest, worst criticisms, and they're incredibly sanctimonious in the process. That's the other thing I can't stand. Is like, and I don't think Democrats realize this, and I don't think mainstream media realizes this, but they find a way to like, sometimes come across as even more insufferable than Trump, because Trump's a total piece of shit, and it's obvious. He wears it on his sleeve, right? Whereas with mainstream media and with Democrats, they're just, everything is sanctimonious and arrogant and bullshit and fake. And it's like, oh, you're, like, you're trying to cover up the fact that you're a piece of shit and act like you know, you're some sort of genius so anyway, I, I despise the media, man. I, despise, I wish they didn't waste all of their, I don't even know the right word for it. I wish they didn't blow their credibility. I'll say it like that. I wish they didn't blow their credibility on Russiagate. I wish they didn't blow their credibility pushing for every single war over the past few decades. But they did. I wish they didn't waste their credibility, you know, uh, not covering the WikiLeaks about how the 2016 primary was stolen from Bernie Sanders. But they did. They did, man. And so now this, this is what we get from them. The criticism isn't Trump called X a hoax. Hey, he called COVID-19 a hoax. Let me explain to you why that's BS. That would be a fair criticism. Hey, he calls mail-in voting a hoax. Let me explain why that's BS. That would be a fair criticism. Instead of that, it's he says, he uses the word hoax too much. And I don't know if you caught the beginning. He said, um, oh, 
fake, fake news is wearing off. He used to use that criticism too much. By the way, yes, he did. But there are also instances of fake news being real. And what, you know, what the media does is they over-defend themselves and they over-criticize. The problem is not the term fake news. The problem is that, yes, he only invokes it when it's like to cover up his own lies. But is there fake news? Of course there is. Absolutely. Are some things hoaxes? Absolutely. But it's always the metacriticism with him. Oh, he uses this word too much. Unacceptable. You're going to have to do better than that, man. It's amazing to me that in the era of Trump, who's deeply unlikable, somehow the institutions managed to come across as just as grating, if not more so, than him. All right, now I'm going to give you the polling numbers that are absolutely out of this fucking world. CBS News and YouGov are out with some absolutely ridiculous new polling numbers that I have to share with you. Um, Listen, some of this stuff is inexplicable. So let's start with this. What percentage of Republicans say the United States is dealing with coronavirus well? Guess in your head before I say it. (laughs) The answer is 73%. 73% of Republican voters say the U.S. is dealing with COVID well. Now, what percentage of the entire country? Only 38% of the country says we're handling it well, but 73% of Republicans. What planet are these people on? I got more for you. 57% of Republicans say coronavirus deaths have been, quote, acceptable. There's 170,000 deaths and quickly rising. That's acceptable? Would that have been acceptable under Obama if 170,000 Americans died from a virus under Obama? Would you think they would have found that acceptable? More than half of Republicans say it's acceptable to have 170,000 people die because of a virus, and don't get it twisted, our response was abysmal. We definitely could have reduced that number. We could have more than cut that number in half with just intelligent policy. Okay, but now, I honestly, I think it might even get crazier here. When it comes to the condition of the economy, 67% of Republicans say it's good I don't know how to respond to that. I do not know how to respond to that. Before the pandemic, you had 80% of Americans living paycheck to paycheck. Half of American workers making $30,000 a year or less. That was before the pandemic. 32% of Americans couldn't make their housing payment last month. 32%. We're on the brink of 28 million homeless people. Sixty-seven percent of Republicans say the economy is in good shape. That's just you are you're renting your mind out to the Republican establishment and to Donald Trump. 
you are willing to just turn off your critical thinking abilities and say, it's my team. This is, this is, I've never seen better evidence of tribalism. This is the best evidence I've ever seen for tribalism trumping, no pun intended, empirical reality. We're learning a lot with these numbers, man. Um, by the way, what percentage of all voters say the economy is in good shape? 35%. 35%. So that's the 35% that, you know, I call TFGs, too far gone. You're not going to get through to that. No matter how much you are clear, hey, I want to help you, I want to fix the system, I want to make it better, they, they're just brain off, are you a Republican? No. Not interested. Okay. Final one for you. Is America better off than four years ago? 75% of Republicans say yes. And just 35% of the entire country. Guys, we're learning a lot, man. I'm telling you, these numbers tell me a lot. It tells me that about 35% of the country are TFGs. If I want to be extra kind, 30% of the country. If, listen, here's the point. Here's the point. If you can't say now that we're not better off than four years ago, that the economy isn't in good shape, that this COVID is unacceptable, if you can't say this, then there is no set of facts wherein you would change your mind. There's just no set of facts. If it was two million dead from the virus under Trump, these numbers would be exactly the same. Exactly the same. Because if you're willing to disregard 170,000, you're willing to disregard 2 million. Actual unemployment rate is about 20%. We've surpassed the Great Recession. We've surpassed the Great Recession. So we're flirting with depression. Even the people who have jobs are taking wage cuts. If you can't look at this state of affairs and say, something's off, then there's just literally no instance in which you would say something's off. The official unemployment rate could be, or the real unemployment rate could be 50%. And you'd find a way to make an excuse and say, no, 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 we're better off. And by the way, one more number for you. Of the people who say um, the economy's in good shape and, and um, we're better off than four years ago and the COVID stuff is acceptable, 82% of them say because of Trump. So in other words, forget all the negative stuff. Trump is a, a positive. Trump is a net benefit. He's the reason why the 170,000 deaths are okay. So it's 82% that are just like, I, I'm renting my brain to the overlord. I find this, this is honestly one of the most pathetic things I've ever seen. It really is. If you take anything away from this show, it has to be that whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, you have to be willing to put aside the partisanship put aside the tribalism and view things objectively and on a case-by-case basis. You know, like evaluate things with a standard in mind. These guys don't have a standard. Their standard is Trump is good and I will work backwards from that conclusion. Well, then you're just a joke if that's the case. You're not a serious person. And, and honestly, it's deeply authoritarian, too, because it's like, I just give me the strong leader and I'll shut up. Just give me the strong leader who I like, and I will play defense all day long for that strong leader. 
That's how these people think. We've got to be better than that. We have to think about things, you know, objectively and with standards in mind. This does not bode well for the future of the country, too, by the way. Just so everybody understands, tens of millions of people have lost their health insurance. There were 7 to 9 million that already lost their health insurance under Trump pre-COVID. Now, post-COVID, it's tens of millions. And that's another thing that, you know, if you talk to these people about it, they'd be like, I don't, I'm, we're still better off than when those people had health insurance. So there is no getting through to some segment of the population. Now, by the way, let me tell you the implication of that. Because the implication of that is not throw your hands up and say, forget it, and just shame these people or spit in their eye nonstop. No. Really, it's just recognizing a TFG when there is a TFG. But I've always been of the belief that anybody who is not a TFG, yes, you work hard to get them to come to your side, to get them to agree with your values and your policies, and you engage and you interact and you make your case. And eventually, yes, some people you can change their minds. Others you can't. But anybody whose mind is changeable, you should try to change. So that's my general approach here. But listen, these numbers are just absolutely shocking and overwhelming. Let's not get it twisted. Now, by the way, if we were looking at a situation where it was a Democratic president and a bunch of terrible things happened and you poll Democrats, would you see some segment of the Democratic base that's like, I will never abandon the Democratic president? Yes, you absolutely would. It wouldn't be as high as the numbers for Republicans. They're, they're a little less sycophantic. But yes, there are plenty of sycophantic ones in the Democratic Party, too. And that's dumb as well. So for the love of God, look at the issues, look at the numbers, care about the issues, care about the numbers, acknowledge the plain-faced reality, because the only way we're going to fix stuff is if we're aware when something is a problem. And this is just, you know, this just hurts. I, I wouldn't be surprised, man. Plenty of these people probably have no money, nothing in the bank, can't pay the bills, and they're still, you know, telling the pollster, everything's good. Better off now than we were four years ago. Economy's in good shape. 170,000 deaths are fine. Yeah, this poll gives me more despair than uh, than a lot of stuff that I've seen in the past year. This is bad. This is bad. All right, let's talk about weed, bitch. So there's a very specific issue that Trump fears might sink his campaign. This is fascinating. So in Raw Story, they say, according to a report at the Daily Beast, Donald Trump has added the American public's desire to legalize marijuana to the list of topics that could cripple his chances at re-election. At issue are states that are crucial to his electoral hopes, including initiatives to allow recreational use of weed on the ballot, which will drive up Democratic participation. As the Beast notes, the president and some of his team, already obsessed with the potential drop-off of various demographic groups that make up his batter coalition, have begun openly worrying 
that the drive to legalize or decriminalize marijuana might hurt him and fellow Republicans on the ballot, or at the ballot box, adding, according to two GOP strategists who've independently discussed the topic with Trump this year, the president believes that inclusion of marijuana initiatives on state ballots could supercharge turnout for voters who lean toward Democratic candidates and causes. So, they go on to say, two of the four states where recreational cannabis legalization will likely make the ballot in November are Arizona and Montana. Both those states um, have Senate races as well, where Republican incumbents, incumbents are facing tough re-election fights. So, um, he's worried. He's worried that, you know, if you have legal marijuana, legalization of marijuana on the ballot in Arizona, that'll increase Democratic turnout, which will in turn help Joe Biden and down-ballot Democrats. That's his fear. Yeah, um, there's a pretty simple solution to this, Don. If this is your concern, you could just legalize it yourself. (laughs) If you legalize it yourself and you legalize it now, well, then it kind of nullifies and takes off the table the issue for individual independent states to vote on, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? Exactly. So, you know, listen, the reason why I think this is important to point out is because I think Trump is a deeply selfish and narcissistic man. And he can only really digest things and understand it in terms of how it will impact him. So if he were convinced by somebody in his administration, somebody who's around him, that, hey, man, this will really help you in 2020, then I think he'd do it. I do. I think he would do it. Because what difference is it to him? What difference is it to him? If, if it'll help him politically, and it's not like, you know, I don't know, maybe part of the evangelical base would be against it, but are, would they really? I don't know. I, I do think Trump in some ways has the ability to almost bring his base along for new things he does. I mean, if they're willing to overlook that this guy's the grab him by the pussy guy and all the other things they used to pretend to care about, like family values, they don't care about that. Are they really going to care if he legalizes recreational marijuana? I don't think they will. I think they make excuses for him. So what's the reason not to do it? By the way, they did the First Step Act, which was criminal justice reform. Now, it is literally just a first step, so it's nothing to write home about. But if you're willing to do that, Donald, why not go further? Why not legalize recreational marijuana? You could do it today. You just got to, you can take executive action and take it off the scheduled substances list or reduce its scheduling. And then that's it. That would be something that would help him with his reelection. I think he would get a bump in the polls if he did that. But more importantly is the empirical reality of what he's concerned about. Hey, I think I might lose Arizona and Montana because weed's on the ballot. Okay, take it off the ballot by legalizing it yourself and free all the nonviolent drug offenders. If we could convince him that this is what has to be done in order for him to win, he might actually do it. By the way, he might actually do it and then still end up losing. (laughs) Because honestly, I think COVID and the economy are like the two biggest things, and that might override anything else. So it is possible he could legalize it thinking it'll help him in the election and then Even if it helps him, it doesn't help him enough for him to win. 
and that would be hilarious. But for now, we'll keep that on the hush-hush, and I think anybody who's in his orbit should be like, hey, man, this, ha- this will be of great personal benefit to you if you do it. It's the right thing to do as a matter of principle and as a matter of policy, the correct policy, but if he's convinced, like, no, 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 this is the ticket for you to win in 2020, then I think he would do it. So anybody who's watching this who, who you know, is in his orbit or knows somebody in his orbit, get to work on making that case, man. Because we could, in theory, have legalized marijuana very quickly. I mean, our, the states are already falling one by one. Obviously, at the federal level, it's a different story. It's illegal at the federal level. But the states are falling one by one. Just speed up this process, man. Speed it up. And um, who knows what Trump will do. And I, re- I honestly, I don't have much faith in Biden or Kamala doing the right thing on this front. I don't. Kamala laughed at the idea of legal weed in 2014. Joe is, uh, you know, drug warrior, crime bill Joe Biden. So he, they're not going to do it. And that would mean another four years or eight years of not getting it done. So this might actually be our best opportunity now. If you can portray it to Trump, if you can let him know, like, hey, man, this would help you, then he might actually do it. Isn't it funny that you have politicians who look at the state of the country and they're like, damn, okay, that issue might really help my opponents. Hmm. Hmm. And the thought is not immediately like, oh, how about I go there? How about I do that? That just doesn't occur to them. It's like they think that everything is so ossified that it's like there's no, I mean, obviously I'm not going to grow and do positive things for people. Don't be ridiculous. But I fear that my opponent might do that. (laughs) Like what? It's, what a gross system. And then we haven't even gotten into, of course, you know. You have Big Pharma and the alcohol companies. Like, they don't want legal marijuana, and they've been lobbying against it. You know who else doesn't want it? The DEA. A lot of people are going to lose their jobs if you say, hey, you know what? This drug, which is probably the most popular in the country, and it's illegal, it's not going to be illegal anymore. Those people are going to be upset, too. So you have, like, the built-in special interests and corruption, which kind of keep the system moving at a snail's pace um, in the right direction, or just, you know, we're being totally stagnant and stuck in the wrong position. Anyway, I I think it's a fascinating thing that he thinks he could lose as a result of this. Okay, then do something about it, dipshit. Also do something about it just because it's the right policy anyway. All right, I really like this next story. Here we go. So President Trump decided to do the thing that he says he hates, which is join the outrage mob and partake in cancel culture. I hate that phrase so much. It's so stupid. But anyway, look at what he said. He said, don't buy Goodyear tires. They announced a ban on MAGA hats. Get better tires for far less. This is what the radical left Democrats do. Two can play the same game, and we have to start playing it now. Okay, so now let me change my graphic as I'm talking to you guys. I still got the weed thing over my shoulder, but I digress. Um, 
Now, why is he saying this? What's he talking about? Well, he's alluding to a story that blew up in right-wing media, and the story shows a slide which says, here's what's acceptable to wear, and it was, it was like Black Lives Matter and LGBTQ stuff, and it was like, that's fine to wear. Here's what's not fine to wear, Blue Lives Matter stuff, MAGA stuff, and other like right-wing stuff. And it's a slide, and it says it's part of like diversity training for Goodyear tires. So Trump heard that, all the right-wing media outlets reported it, and then he went with like, boycott Goodyear, boycott him. Now here's the problem. Goodyear was asked about this, and they're like, we have no idea what these people are talking about. That's not a slide for any diversity training or something that we have. That's, that's not our policy at all. So what was it? Was it just a hoax? Very possible. Very possible it was just a hoax. And the President of the United States called for a boycott of an American company in a swing state during an election. What a dunce. Okay, no, guys, this is literally like the perfect encapsulation of why Trump is struggling so massively this time in a way that he wasn't in 2016. Because he's so bombarded with culture war, culture war, culture war, culture war all day long, drunk on Fox News, drunk on One America News Network, in that right-wing bubble so deep that he can't see straight. And he falls for a story like this, and then he ends up calling for a freaking boycott of an American company in a swing state during an election. And by the way, I mean, other people are pointing this out. This is a minor point, but yeah, they have Goodyear tires on his, you know, his presidential vehicle or whatever, because they're apparently the best ones for what they need it for. You know, when it comes to the way the president travels, it's bulletproof and all types of craziness going on. So, I mean, guys, this is just a giant gift to Joe Biden when he does this. It's a giant gift. And also, yes, call it what it is. It is him participating in cancel culture. What happened? I thought freedom of speech is so important. And and they always say, when it's the left boycotting something, they're like, freedom of speech. If you're boycotting, you don't believe in freedom of speech. But they can boycott, it's totally fine. And they're boycotting over something that was probably a hoax. Come on, son. Come on. I love how he says, this is what the radical left does, and now we have to start playing the same game. So yes, cancel culture is bad unless we do it. In that case, it's good. See, I'm sorry, he's too, he's lost all of his political instincts. He's not hitting over trade deals, he's not hitting over war, he's not hitting over corruption, he's doing stuff like this. So Biden is like, yummy in my tummy, thank you very much for this gift, and look at the ad he runs. is calling for a boycott of a big American company. Goodyear makes its home in Akron, Ohio. And so I would be very much uh, in favor of people don't want to buy there. A company with a 122-year history in Akron, Ohio, thousands of American workers and competitors all over the world, and a sitting president who's spinning out of control would risk American jobs to try to save his own. I'm Joe Biden, and I approve this message. I mean, he could. it was a layup. That was a layup of an ad. A layup. Can you imagine any other American president doing that, calling for a boycott of an American company in a swing state during an election? And by the way, he's down. Trump is down there now. Now he's going to be down there even more. All because of culture war stuff. I mean, 
it would have been amazing if the Democrats like actually had planned this out. They didn't because they're not that intelligent. But like if they had planned it out from the beginning, let's trick them with a fake slide, culture war stuff, and then they'll run with it, the right-wing media, and then Trump will call for the boycott. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, he doesn't have it anymore. He doesn't have it. If all your arguments are Biden's Antifa, Biden's a Marxist, Biden's not tough enough on China, <laughs> Biden's not in favor of law and order even though we wrote the crime bill, and then now you turn around and try to boycott an American company because you were triggered by a fake story. I'm starting to think that CNN poll may have been an outlier. There was one CNN poll that had Biden up four points on Trump when the month previous it was 14 points up. Starting to think that was the outlier because, you know, there was another poll that just came out with Biden 10 up, which is more in line with what he's been so I'll, I'll tell you what, man, if Trump keeps going down this path, he's going to get trounced. Because you know what? Sometimes he's very instinctual. And that helped him a lot in 2016. This time it's hurting him. It really is. Because there's never, like, he doesn't take a minute to think through stuff. It's just like, he sees something, he reacts to it. And in this instance, where he was convinced that, you know, that Goodyear tires is going full, politically correct nonsense. He was, he was like, immediate reaction to it. And I guarantee you all of his advisors behind the scenes are like, you colossal jackass. First of all, you're promoting cancel culture. Second of all, it's not real. <laughs> Third of all, you're calling for a boycott of an American company during an election where you're down and it's in a swing state. perfect it's too perfectly stupid it's like how trump literally couldn't make a casino profitable a place where they come and give you money (laughs) oh man that was something else all right now let's talk about nina turner because she absolutely burned down the house with this one Nina Turner absolutely lit CNN on fire with truth bombs. This is fun to watch. Jackson, do you feel that the progressive wing was adequately represented at the DNC? No, not at all. I mean, you you look at the the, the corporatist wing was well represented, but no, progressives were not well represented. And and progressives are the future. They, they, they are the future of the party, and as Reverend Jesse Jackson once said, you need two wings to fly. And it seems to me, based on what I saw at that convention, that the corporatists, the neoliberal Democrats, don't have that message. They need to get a clue about that. It takes two wings to fly, and the progressive movement is a part of the party that has the most energy and synergy. And you saw that overwhelmingly compared to, if you just look at the time slot that was given to progressives, versus Republican and neoliberal Democrats, there really is no measure for that. You cannot throw away the base of the party, Anderson, and expect to win. It is very clear that the American people believe what the progressives believe, whether they call it progressivism or not. 
69% Medicare for all, you know, overwhelming majority, Green New Deal, making sure that we have unions. You know, people are suffering, Anderson, so that was not represented, and they have to make sure that they are listening up and speaking up to the part of the Democratic Party that has the type of energy and synergy that is going to be necessary to defeat President. Wiping people out left and right, whether literally or through their lives, because we have an opportunity, if it is taken, to show that the Democratic Party will be the one, not to answer to the corporate interests. There are 12 billionaires, Anderson, in this country who are at a trillion dollars. They control a trillion dollars worth of wealth. Meanwhile, back on Main Street, people are catching all kinds of hell. So we people who going to stand up for the poor, the working poor, and the better, a barely middle class in this country, and it's, be, it's bigger than having BLM blocks behind you or quoting or, or mentioning Ella Baker's name. It is living up to those high ideas and the, and the principles by which those freedom fighters fought for. This is the time to do that. People need it. I, I wonder what you thought of Senator Sanders' uh, remarks uh, embracing, uh, embracing Joe Biden, clearly yeah, asking his supporters to um, – to, to get Joe Biden elected? I mean, the senator was clear. He's a man of his word. He said it in 2016. He said it again in 2020. So the senator is doing what he does. But he created a movement. He was a spark. And the movement is the fire. And so the movement doesn't change. The, the notion that we need Medicare for all does not change. The notion that we need to legalize cannabis and take it off the of Schedule 1 because it has ruined so many lives, particularly African-American lives with the war on drugs. And so that doesn't change. The need to have college for all, that doesn't change. Environmental justice, see, none of those core fundamental issues change because it was never about a personality. It was more about the mission. And so progressives are still on the mission, understanding very clearly that we got two dragons we got to slay. We got to slay the dragon of neo-fascism and slay the dragon of neoliberalism, and the progressive movement is here for it. And it's her. I appreciate your time. Thank you. That's my president right there. That's who represents me. Of all the voices on the national scene, Nina Turner is without a doubt the closest one to my philosophy and my ideology. She couldn't have said it any better. It's impossible to say it better than that. It's about the ideals and the principles and the policies. It's not about the symbolism and the empty rhetoric and the platitudes and the cliches. And that's exactly what the mainstream leaders in the Democratic Party do all day, every day. There were articles about how Elizabeth Warren had Black Lives Matter written over her shoulder. Oh, my God, a wink and a nod to justice. Yes! This is the commentary of babies. That's a baby analysis. That's a child analysis. So all they have to do is sprinkle in a little symbolism, and all of a sudden, you lose it in your pants? I mean, how pathetic is that? Honestly, this reminds me a lot of, like, you know, how the NBA is allowing, like, we'll we'll write Black Lives Matter on the court, and everybody will kneel. And, hey, look, coaches are kneeling, too. And people are wearing jerseys that say things like equality and justice. Isn't that wonderful? Oh, yeah, it's wonderful. What's the thing I've been telling you guys since the beginning of all this? They will always cave on the symbolism first. They will always cave on the symbolism first. Why? 
because you're conceding without conceding anything. There's no real power concession in that. There's no power concession. Listen, you could have a billionaire take a knee and, you know, to stand for racial justice, but if you're not raising his taxes and you're not giving people health care and you're not ending the drug war and freeing every nonviolent drug offender, then there's no justice. There's no justice. There's just symbolism. There's just making yourself feel good by going through the motions. Nobody understands that better than Nina Turner. Nina Turner sees the vapid losers for who they are. And in many ways, it's actually more nefarious. Because when the Republicans do things that we hate, they're in your face about it. They're upfront about it. When the Democrats do things we hate, they're hiding it the entire time because they're cloaking it in the shield, in the veneer of decency and justice and equality, and we mean well, we're for good things and we're against bad things. Really? Really? And why did you vote down Medicare for All on the platform? Of the 40 to 65,000 Americans that die every year because they don't have access to basic health care, what number would be acceptable to you? 20,000? Okay, let's say it's 40,000 that die from no health care. Is 20,000 acceptable? You want to cut it in half? Go tell one of the people whose mom died that that's okay. You voted against Medicare for All. You voted it down. You are saying effectively that's okay. Legalizing marijuana, same thing. Go tell somebody whose family was broken apart and whose life was ruined as a result of being locked up for a nonviolent drug offense. Now they can't get a job. Go tell them it's okay that you voted down legal weed when over 60% of the country wants it, over 60% want Medicare for all, free college, same thing. By the way, they argued the Bernie Sanders supporters were a cult. Does that sound like somebody who's still following Bernie to you? Is she cultish? When she flat out says, hey, listen, with all due respect to Bernie Sanders, he was the spark. But this is a movement. And the movement is dedicated. It was never about him. It was about the issues. And so the movement is dedicated to Medicare for All and legalizing weed and free college. And he may have given up the direct fight on that front to bend the knee to Joe Biden. But that's not my job. That's not her job. That's not your job. Listen, I'm not going to judge you. You're going to make whatever decision you're going to make in this election, and you have your reasons, and I'm sure there are good reasons, whether you decide to vote or not, whether you decide it's Biden or the Green Party or somebody else. But what we should all agree on, regardless of what you're going to do, is that if you're on the left, you need to be loud, organized, involved, persistent, and relentless, and not all of those things in service of any individual or politician, but in service of reaching those goals, reaching, getting those policies implemented, not taking no for an answer. And unfortunately, what happens in today's day and age is people are so terrified of Trump and they hate him so much that they're willing to overlook the flaws of the Democrats and yell at the people who are trying to hold the Democrats accountable and actually hold them to a standard and actually give people health care and give people higher wages and give people universal basic income. See, that would be them gaslighting you. 
You can't stop. No, you can't. You can't go after Joe. You can't. Trump's so bad. Trump's so bad. If you get rid of Trump, but you still have moderate Republican policies, that will give us a new Trump at some point. Because it was those moderate Republican policies, that neoliberal corporatism, which led to the backlash, which gave us the fake populist. So that's exactly what's going to happen again if you have neoliberal corporate policies. That's exactly what's going to happen. You know who knows that? Nina Turner knows that. That's why she's dedicated to the issues. It's not about Bernie. It's not about Bernie. You know, for it, apparently Bernie's running the worst cult in the world because none of his followers follow him. This happened the other day where Nancy Pelosi came out and endorsed Joe Kennedy against Ed Markey. Then Pramila Jayapal did it. Then Mark Pocan did it. These are all supposed to be Congressional Progressive Caucus real lefties picking the conservative Democrat over the further left Democrat, Ed Markey. They asked, the media asked Bernie straight up, hey, they're all endorsing Kennedy. Who do you prefer? He punted. Um, I'm going to stay out of the race. I thought it was not me, us. Hold on now. I thought it was not me, us. You know, the Sunrise Movement is all in for Ed Markey because he's one of the prime people fighting for the Green New Deal. You know that they're all in for him, right? What happened to not me, us? Now it's not us, me is what it is. You can't even say, even if it's a tepid endorsement, yeah, I'd be voting for Ed Markey if I was there. You can't say that? You can't say that. Why? Well, maybe it's because Ed Markey did the wrong thing and he didn't back Bernie in the primary. You know what? There's a lot of criticism to go around there, too. Listen, corporate Democrats have solidarity until the cows come home. They defend each other come hell or high water. And there is zero solidarity on the left. Markey didn't support Bernie. Bernie didn't support Markey. People who are supposed to be progressives like Pramila Jayapal are just siding with the corporatists. And people get mad at Nina Turner for speaking the truth and saying, hey, man, this is about the issues, and that's all it's about. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to fight for those issues. It ain't about Bernie. It ain't about anybody else. It's about the issues. And, you know, we got to have solidarity with each other if these are people who are going to fight on these fronts. That's all we should really care about. But it's so easy to divide and conquer the left. It's so easy to sidetrack the left. All you need is a BS scandal, and boom, we're off to the races, and they could try to take you down. Look what happened to Alex Morse. Look no further than that. Now, thankfully, the truth came out thanks to Ryan Grimm and The Intercept, and they really had to dig in to get it, but he was ready to drop out of the race, Alex Morse was, because of a smear campaign from a corporate Democrat who literally is the number one recipient of corporate PAC money. I'm off in the weeds here now, babbling about a million different things, but guys, Nina said it best. It's not about Bernie. It's about the ideals. It's about the principles. It's about the policies. I don't care about the symbolism. I don't care about the empty rhetoric. I'm going to push these politicians to do not just my bidding, but the bidding of the American people because the polls show this is what they want. Now, you can cry. You can yell. You can bitch. You can moan. You can tell me to fall in line. You can tell me I'm helping Trump. You can say all this nonsense. It ain't true because I know what we're doing. I know what's in my heart. I know what's in her heart. I know what the end goal is, and I have my eye on the ball. And unfortunately, it's not common in today's day and age now, is it? 
somebody to keep their eye on the ball and to be relentless and aggressive in pursuit of justice and fairness and a better system. That's so uncommon that it's refreshing when you hear anybody say things that are along the lines of what Nina said here. So I'll, I'll say it. That this, is, this is who I prefer for 2024. This is who I prefer. She represents me more than anybody else. She's relentless in her pursuit of creating a better country. And I have full faith and confidence that she'd never bend the knee in a way that's disappointing. And she'd be the definition of a true leader. That's not common. Okay. And on that note, y'all, we are done. Actually, you know what? Let me, let me, I'm going to squeeze in one more. I'm going to squeeze in one more. Let me see if I can find it. One more. So here's an interesting thing um, I wanted to share with you because there's, there's actually a lot that goes into this dynamic. But Joe Biden says no new taxes for anybody making under $400,000 a year. This is indicative of a rightward shift in the Democratic Party. Back early on in the Obama years, the argument was, hey, we're not going to raise taxes on anybody making less than $100,000 a year. That was the original Obama position. Then that became, fast forward a few years, we're not going to raise taxes on anybody making under $250,000 a year. Fast forward again, about a decade. Now, the Biden position is we're not going to raise taxes on anybody making under $400,000 a year. Listen, I actually agree with the original Obama position. As somebody who's a leftist, I do think that working people should get more government services, but also not have to pay more taxes because you already pay enough taxes. It just happens to go to war and Wall Street bailouts and all types of nonsense. So yes, if I was president, I would not raise taxes on anybody making $100,000 a year or less. So I actually agree with that original Obama position. But now you see they're, they're slowly creeping, raise that, raise that, raise that, raise that. And then now, what's the next step? Nobody making less than a million dollars a year will see their taxes raised. That's a million dollars a year is a lot of goddamn money. I think they can afford to have their taxes raised a little bit. And you're also talking about it's a matter of percentages now. So, like, I don't have the numbers in front of me at the moment, but going off of memory previously from looking at these things, like $100,000 a year. So, basically, I wouldn't raise taxes on, like, 95% of Americans. 
5% of Americans, yes, you would have a tax increase, but it's also on a progressive scale. So in other words, you pay a little more if you make 200000 You pay a little more than that if you make 300000 But we need you know, higher marginal taxes on the rich. There should be new brackets for over 500000 over a million dollars a year, over $5 million a year. Um, and unfortunately, they just keep raising this number so nobody will see a tax increase if you make even $350,000 a year. And by the way, to the extent he would even raise taxes on those making over $400,000 a year, it's going to be buckus. It's going to be basically going back to like the Clinton rates. What was Bill Clinton's rate? 39% top marginal tax rate on the top bracket. What was it under George W. Bush, for example? 35%. Wow, a whole, you know, another 4%. So I, it's indicative of a continued rightward shift in the Democratic Party to the point where they're just trying to embody all the Republican arguments, and they're basically admitting they are the moderate Republican Party in today's day and age. That's what they are. I mean, they packed the convention, the DNC convention, full of speakers who were like big-time people at the 96th Republican convention. The argument is we're the 96 Republicans. That's what it is. And they're not giving you a fundamentally different vision. And this explains how we are where we are. You don't have a Democratic Party in this country. You have a Republican Party and a Diet Republican Party. And we don't have anybody actually making the case. And the wars higher taxes on the rich, Medicare for all, free the nonviolent drug offenders, the list goes on and on. I want somebody that represents me. Those, that would represent me. This does not. What else is he going to come out and say, I'm actually with the Republicans on this one too? The only upside of this is that, of course, the arguments are going to be total straw men from the right every step of the way. But to tell you the truth, the arguments were straw men even against Obama. When Obama... Obama was crystal clear, I will not raise taxes on anybody making $100,000 a year or less. So that's 95% of the country. It's 95% of the country. So working people are not going to see a tax increase. Joe's just taking it even further. Now it's like even upper middle class people will not see a tax increase. So Joe's not just you know, saying no more working class taxes. He's saying no new taxes even on the upper middle class, even on the relatively wealthy He's basically saying only the top 1% or 0.5% are going to see a tax increase. So, but anyway, that will not stop the Republicans from turning around and arguing that, you know, Joe's a, Joe's a radical leftist. He's such a radical leftist by not raising taxes on somebody making $395,000 a year. So radical. So radical. He's so radical by wanting to continue all the wars that we support. He's so radical for voting for the Patriot Act and doing everything we want him to do. He's so radical for writing the crime bill. Something we totally agree with. So radical. So he'll keep he'll keep giving and giving and giving and giving more and more to them and they'll keep spitting in his eye. And you know, this dynamic is going to drive us crazy in so many ways. Um but most importantly because you vote if you vote Republican, you get Republican change. If you vote Democratic, you get Republican change. That's where we're at, and this story is another great example of it. Okay. 
All right, guys, we are done. Love you guys. I'll talk to you soon. Hope everybody's having a good one and staying safe out there. Peace.